I'm a woman with a mission, a dog with a bone. There are actually two bones I've got these days. One is that I believe that nonprofits are front and center in our society, but they do not see themselves that way and are not seen that way. I have spoken about this in previous episodes. That's what dogs with bones do, by the way. It seems that the nonprofit sector is far too defined by what we are not. So what about the second bone? The second bone is that innovation is undervalued in our sector. Leaders of smaller nonprofits are so busy trying to hit payroll and boards of directors think they are in the business of risk management. And so innovation takes a backseat. But remember, if you can innovate during the worst public health crisis of our times, which all of you did, you have already exercised that muscle. So today I want to look at innovation through the lens of marketing. What? You you don't have a marketing department? (laughs) I know. So let's spend some time with someone today who runs a nonprofit that knows more than a thing or two about marketing and has tapped into corporate dollars in a way that kind of screams innovation. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. My guest today is Allison Moore, the CEO of Comic Relief US. Reading her bio takes me back to my own arrival in the nonprofit space, having become a CEO after a career in entertainment. Comic Relief U.S. is the American charity using the power of entertainment to drive positive change to help those who need it most. Since coming to the U.S. in 2015, the organization's signature Red Nose Day campaign to end child poverty has raised over $270 million and positively impact over 25 million children in the U.S. and around the world. Allison became a nonprofit professional in 2019 after an impressive career in media and tech. Moore joined as Chief Business Officer Beauty Collection at Condé Nast, overseeing the brand strategy for women-focused brands such as Glamour and Allure. Prior to Condé Nast, Moore was Chief Revenue Officer at SoundCloud, the global digital music and audio platform, and previously held positions at NBC Universal and HBO, focusing on digital consumer experiences, brand development, and consumer engagement strategies. In addition to her previous corporate roles, Moore is active in the entrepreneurship space, working with socially conscious startups and incubators. She's also a board member of Trace, the leading global media entertainment and brand platform connected for connected Afro-urban millennials. Allison, That is a big, fat resume. Thank you for joining me, sharing your insights with our listeners. Thank you for having me, Joan. I uh, I appreciate the warm introduction and the the litany that you had to read through. (laughs) A lot to connect through, I know, but it all makes sense to me in some regard. Yeah, it's important. (laughs) I... um... 
Sometimes people say, oh, you should take more off the bios. I'm like, no, I think people need to hear the path. Um, And so that's where I want to start. I want to talk about your move from corporate to nonprofit. Now, I made the same move. And so I'm often asked why, how, what was it like? So let's start there. Why? And what have been the headlines for you about this career move? Yeah, well, thanks. I, you know, the why came from a very interesting sort of serendipitous conversation that I had with some folks at Russell Reynolds who were looking for the CEO for this this organization. And at first I, you know, I had, ta- I had gone to the, I'd spoken to everybody, it took some time after leaving Condé Nast. Unfortunately, my father had passed away and uh, suddenly in 2018 in November. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, you know what, let's just take a minute, take a beat and figure out what it is that, you know, I want to, I want to do next. And so I had a conversation with some folks who said, I think you should have a, you should talk to Richard Curtis at Comic Relief. And I thought, okay, I, I always had put myself in the middle of between the marketing, the revenue driving, the digital experiences, the sort of consumer connection work that I had done. As you mentioned, HBO, NBC, or SoundCloud, Daily Candy, et cetera. I always had a sense that I was doing that with a, a it was purposeful. The work yeah. was purposeful, mainly because it was in support of a creative entity, right? right? A showrunner. I mean, you and I talked about this, you know, yeah. the days in MTV, right? Content creators, my editors, um, emerging artists at SoundCloud. Like it just felt like I was building something of an operation that could support something that was purposeful. And so then talking to Richard, it was an interesting intersection between what he saw as a clarion call as a creator and a creative, you know, in the late eighties and said, you know, came back from an experience that changed his life and said, what can I do in what, and what I do really well, what can I do to move the needle to help make change? And it wasn't, setting up a foundation and then working on like a couple of galas and doing some direct mail and all. It was actually taking what he did really well, which was almost through the vein of comedy and, and almost taking a, an absurd red nose. Really, it's pretty, I mean, it's absurd. And put on the <laughs> front of buses. And it was sort of like, you know, late 80s kind of punkish sort of attitude wise, you know, and that was highly unexpected at that time. So talking with him around that and thinking about this sort of uh, experience that I had had, largely in digital and largely in the kind of intersection between how you, how you deeply engage and immerse somebody in the idea of something context, and then are able to convert that to action, but have that really occupy a space of true purpose and helping um, raise money to support these incredible programs. It just felt like a real felt right. So, yeah, I, um, I wonder if when I, again, when I read your resume, uh, I hearkened back to my own background. Um, a lot of the work that you have done is about making new things, yeah. about making new things happen. And um, I have said on many occasions that any kind of experience of doing something that is a startup or startup like mm-hmm. activity is a really fine foundational set of experience for the nonprofit sector and i wonder yeah. if you find that true and how you might how you might describe why that might be true i think that's absolutely true i mean i've worked in and it hits on two sides right the 
on the startup piece where you're working, you know, I've worked in startups. I was with a startup way back. We don't need to date that yet, but like with four other guys around the table <laughs> working on a, you know, we, okay. To, to make millions and none of that materialized, by the way, or, you know, even joining, um, SoundCloud was not, was a, you know, longer in the tooth startup, but it really operated like that. You have all the kind of pressure and sort of scarcity of resources in many ways that you do in a, in a nonprofit. And I think that having that understanding of what it, you know, how to make lemonades out of lemons, if that's how you say it, uh, is helpful. Really. Yeah. I think it's it's an urgency too, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's a total urgency because you have a couple of shots and then you know, to make something and then, uh, then it becomes clear you can't. So that urgency and kind of needing to act is part of the startup. But the other part of the startup is also, I would say on the other tail end of the startup where you're evolving to the next phase of whatever that needs to be and the ability to be nimble and, um, you know, move away from sacred cows, if you will, around mm-hmm. things that, well, we've always done it this way and we should continue. It's like you, you need to be able to kind of read what's happening in whatever marketplace you're playing. And that, and as, as, you know, I think I think in some ways, uh, the dynamic of the nonprofit sector is a is a folks sometimes want to move away from thinking about it as a marketplace, and I understand that because that seems like you know a really terrible construct to apply to raising funds to help support human beings. But at the same time, if you look at it more pragmatically and think about, okay, I need to respond and I, I, I require human beings to give donations. I require human beings to either do that individually or do that because they sit somewhere at a foundation or a corporation to kind of like let go of funds to me. I need to, as an organization, as a CEO and a leader of an organization, be able to be responsive to what's happening that's affecting those people's choices. And that's what it gets down to. Less of a marketplace like buy and sell and exchange, but more of like, what's happening in the world to get people to respond. Yeah, I I do think that the successful startups uh, are have a team of people, one of whom is really, really good at looking around the next corner. That's right. Right. right? And, um, and I, we're going to get into this notion about uh, the marketplace. Um, but I wonder... Um, a few things because you 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 are relatively new. You joined Comic Relief US uh, just before the world stopped dead yeah. in its tracks, right? Good timing as always. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had some. I have some clients that started during lockdown and have actually never met any of the people that they work with. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. Crazy. But maybe. Um, uh, a few things about the nonprofit sector that sort of inspire you, maybe tea, begin to tee up some of the uh, missed opportunities that we might get into as we continue our conversation. Yeah, I, you know, the, the inspiration comes from exactly that idea of continuous evolving. I mean, every role that I've ever had, that sort of the desire to be um, part of the Rubik's Cube <laughs> making and, and to figure out the solutions when you've got downward pressure um, to to act and I, I thrive in those kind of environments but the idea particularly coming out of the experience that I have with my father and you know I, I would say frankly really inspired by my daughter and my 15 year old you know who is uh, I, I think deeply human and reminds me of humanity mm-hmm. and um the idea of, of 
using whatever it is that you have as a superpower, whatever that may or may not may or may not be, and applying it in places for good. That coming off of the the death of my father and and kind of with the the growing sort of activism and awareness of my daughter was a really I found that a nonprofit role would answer that call. And I think it definitely did. And so landing here, boots on the ground, I guess, in September of 2019, I certainly couldn't have anticipated what was going to come up in March of 2020. But this organization's in the middle, even before COVID, was in the middle of a real um, evolutionary shift and sort of thinking about things like that I had worked in, amplifying youth influences, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking about maximizing partnerships to the extent to grow scale and I know we'll talk a little bit about that too and like what does scale mean and how do, how do you define that um, building out new lines of income um, so that we're not so we can diversify our income streams to give us optionality so that we can continue to weather the storm frankly of things that are un- unforeseen I mean, certainly COVID was like a major thing not ever seen, but you know, this is, this is the, this is the challenge in nonprofits is that you do, you are at the receipt of others waves and you need to be really flexible to be able to react to that. So, um, and what you want as an organization is sure, you know, steady sort of income balance sheet, right? That's just normal math, but also the ability to kind of respond and, and receive um, and, and, and part of that is optionality for the organization to, because honestly, when we stop working and we're stopped, we are stopped, we stop developing, um, the ability to raise funds that affects people's lives. And that is an inspiration in and of itself for not only me, but everybody on our team. Yep. Money equals impact. There's, there's just yeah. no way around it. Um, so for those who might need a little 411 on Comic Relief US and Red Nose Day, I think we should provide that to them, don't you? I think that would be wise, yes. So we are the sister organization of the UK Comic Relief. As I mentioned, Richard Curtis, our founder, he started it in the 80s um, and to has raised, you know, still active, very active and has raised over a billion dollars um, to help people around the world um, in the fight against poverty. So in 2015, he and a band of merry English types came to the U.S. and really um, went under the banner of Comic Relief, activated and launched Red Nose Day here in the U.S., which had not existed before and and really tapped, I would say, the British expat community, which, by the way, is rather strong. Mm -hmm. I'll go here to note that. Uh, But three C-level folks at Walgreens, NBC, and Mars who all of whom are British and deeply understood what Red Nose Day was and had grown up with it as children and knew the power of that simple red nose and what that did to just um, as a kind of uh, Pavlovian bell to sign, to give people the idea that it's time to give. And how could we create that sort of space here in the U.S.? So we are, Red Nose Day has been around, you know, since 2015, our mission um, is to keep children. It's all about ending child poverty and keeping children safe, healthy, educated, and empowered. So that's our mission. And I can talk a little bit more of our grant making strategy across the board. Um, but we do that in a very, I would say, you know, some ways typical, but some ways atypical that we activate in the halls of brands. So we are deeply rooted in the, as in partnership with Walgreens, NBC, 
and at uh, Mars. And so primarily with Walgreens, we activate in their store. So this is shelf talkers and retail point of sale materials. The entire store turns red for April and May, talking about Red Nose Day. And there's a red nose that's offered at point of sale historically. And then there are employees who really kind of wrap themselves in the cause and ask for public donations during the red nose day time window, which is April and May. We kick that off April 1st with Walgreens. And then we go through two months of promotion that culminates at the end of May in a show with NBC. And that is taking advantage of the incredible promotional power that NBC has through all of their, you know, interstitials and marketing and the talent engagement. And then we have a show that it becomes on Red Nose Day to build up the awareness and urgency and um, and activate consumers to give during that time. So that's the general construct. That Through that construct, we've raised over $230 million in the U.S. alone for Red Nose Day. Um, and then over the last couple of years, you know, tapping into innovation, thinking about youth influencers, leveraging platforms and content, and frankly, frictionless giving that online and digital platforms kind of afford us. We've really built in an additional kind of activation during that time digitally. And I can talk a little bit about how that has looked as well. For the next, the last two years, we've really started to talk about, okay, once we're April, May, which is our main campaign happens. Mm -hmm. What else are we doing? You know, the public is ready to give. People are, you know, the issues don't go away June to December and then January to March. So we have this concept of now coming back towards more toward the end of the year. And this has really been in a bit of change for us as well, too. Having to operationalize and think about ideas and ways to connect to to consumers. Because our work is really about galvanizing the public. We do have a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but the lion's share of how we raise is through, um, you know, I would the democratization of giving through public facing, you know, one on one on one, me to you, you know, and the person, the one individual person making it making a difference. The um, I think the thing I like best, and you and I didn't talk about this actually in our kind of pre conversation. I think the thing I like best about and we're really here to talk about sort of marketing and brand and, and and using those brand platforms. But you make giving joyful. That's right. And that's right. Um, you act. You don't. Yes, you make giving joyful, but you highlight. You put a big fat spotlight, or actually a big red nose, on the idea that it is a pure unadulterated joy to give money to causes that you care about. It is the biggest thing that I talk about with clients who have organizations that have fundraising anxieties, uh, of which there are many, is that they don't understand, they don't understand that the the asking someone to give brings joy to the giver, right? Yes. That it is an invitation for them to get out of the stands onto the field and actually do make a, take an action of purpose. And that is inherently, not just a privilege, but it's inherently joyful. And I think that that's, when I think about comic relief and I think about the brilliance of Richard's original idea I do think 
it may have been started by comics, right? Yeah. But that um, that they stumbled into what is to me core about philanthropy that most people miss all together. Yes, I and I and I'll take you um, one step further with that. Is that I think the interesting thing about comedy and by comedy, it's you know clever, smart humor as a way to elevate the issues. You know, it's interesting to have comedy as a through line is that it it makes the joy accessible. And I think right. that gets back to the marketing piece. Like, how do you make joy? Com- how can you communicate joy when you're talking around and sparking the element of joy of giving? But the issues that you're talking about are are heavy and yeah. concerning and feel overwhelming. And I feel like uh, the comedy aspect, the comic, the comedic, and again, not like stand-up jokes, but the idea of humor and levity kind of uh, brought through all of our work really breaks down barriers and in some ways can connect you back to the human root of what's happening and because it breaks things down So, in a good way. Agreed. Agreed. So I I know I have skeptical listeners and <laughs> listening to you talk about <clears throat> listening to you talk about Walgreens and Mars and these relationships and the and celebrities and corporate dollars. And, you know, the skeptical listener is out there saying, yeah, OK, Allison, got it. You got celebrities um, you have uh, access to C-suite people at corporations. If I had that kind of access, maybe I wouldn't be sweating payroll. But I don't think it's some kind of unfair advantage, actually. First of all, Comic Relief built a model, a different kind of model, right? Mm-hmm. And you operate differently and you innovate. And because of that, you're able to have this kind of impact. So I... I I, I I want listeners to be listening to this um, with an open with open eyes and ears about yep. the model itself and how marketing takes center stage for Allison and her team. So talk a little bit about that to the skeptic. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, I've had people say this to me that are from other nonprofits. That is kind of a little bit of the skeptic's mindset and. That, I think it's all hard. <laughs> I think if you have our model or you have another model, at a, and I can think of quite a few, and many of them are grantee partners, um, it's a hustle and it's, it's hard work. And so the, the, the reason why I say that is that our model, and I'll explain it in a kind of broken down uh, toolkit way, because right. I think it's easy to understand that, is unique and different. And so we, we are sort of organized to support that model. We're not organized to support other kinds of models that I wish we were organized to support. So I think with, as with everything, there's a yin yang, but let me, so, you know, I, I think the best way to think of comic relief, Red Nose Day follows this, but any other event or sort of tentpole consumer galvanizing moment that we would set up would follow the kind of steps here aligning with the social impact issues, right? So when we say Red Nose Day is aligned with safe, healthy, educated, empowered. This is the kind of exchange to people, to the public, going in and buying toothpaste at Walgreens, that they can understand in very simple terms what it means, what they are supporting. 
and communicating what that is, as opposed to maybe the larger kind of white paper explanation. We've got a lot of that at our organization. We have a lot of deep, deep kind of perspective as to what we support and why we support it. And we're constantly evaluating that along our five-year grant making program. But from a marketing context, we make that sort of social impact issues very tangible to a donor, but I call them donor consumers because of where we activate. You literally are going in and buying mouthwash and then two minutes later, you're donating $20 to Red Nose Day. And that flip of the script in your own head is, that's different, right? So we, we put it around, we take those issues and we align them around at what, you know, a giving program. Red Nose Day is a giving program. It's a program that people see with the logo and the colors associated and the red nose, things that kind of make it um, a moment in time yep. that allow them to connect with what that is and on repeat behavior that happens. We are a, we do all that fundraising, but we grant out to trusted other nonprofits. And so part of what we ensure is that the money raised, whether you're a corporate entity that we're partnering with or a consumer's donor that's doing it individually, that the money is placed in programs that move the needle to what we promised you at the top of the conversation, safe, healthy, educated, empowered, through lines of of focus areas of racial equity and gender equity, and frankly, building resilience. And we guarantee that work in the way by ensuring deep partnerships with our grantee partners. So like Covenant House, Boys and Girls Club of America, Feeding America. Mm-hmm. We have over 30 grantee partners that we grant out for, for instance, for Red Nose Day. 50-50 split US and internationally. And these are we they're grantee partners, but we're deeply embedded with them in terms of their work. And we we really find that it's a partnership. Um, we're there to help them grow and and further their work. So that that's a really important part of the work that we do because otherwise it's just raising money and and without any context to actually the needle moving and that's that's not that's not the space that we occupy and the reason I'm pointing that out I'll tell you how we're organized after this we have a pipeline of partners uh, we have a pipeline to talent through our partnership with NBC for sure but also through Richard and his sort of experience and who he is and what he has done in his life and so through those relationships have built long-term partners through talent and, and increasingly even social influencers who really are connected to the cause. Uh, we work with them. We understand talent. We understand what it means for them to put their name against something and how to ensure that it's an authentic experience for them and not just like, hey, your talent, put your name here. Because at the end of the day, that doesn't really work well for them or frankly for you as an organization. And then finally you know, partnerships are key. And I think, you know, the idea of scale, I mean, we could have the most incredible campaign, the most incredibly engaging kind of idea, but our social handles pale in comparison to many other social handles. Our website is, you know, is amazing. But I think we need to get it out there so that people come and see and experience, you know, and that's where partnerships become crucial. So whether it's social partnerships with Facebook or Twitch or YouTube or you know, our core partnerships, um, Walgreens is a massive multi-channel partner for us. And they are, um, we work really closely with them. It's not a matter of sort of, here's our logo and let's do something for the month of April and May. We we co-pro and co-produce and their team is as deeply engaged as ours is. And that, that's what makes it so successful. Same thing with the NBC team. I mean, just an incredible amount of 
folks working on creating something together. And we've built that relationship over a long, steady partnership over six years. Um, that's where that comes from. It's not a transactional partnership. So from structurally to, to feed all those five kind of areas in the toolkit, we have a marketing team we have, and that is a lot of it is to think about, okay, once we are in campaign, what is the integrated marketing? Like, how do we make sure that our messaging, our marketing fits and coincides with what NBC would like to do, what Walgreens would like to do? Um, how do we ensure that that feels right and representative of our work and tonally right? And how does it do something for them to kind of align their brand with uh, Red Nose Day during that time? In-house creative we have. We have a digital team with social and web content. Um, we have uh, a PR comms team who's incredible about figuring out the storytelling around how we're going to communicate to a wide audience of folks. It's not just to the donors. It's not just to the corporations. It's also to our partners, to our, their employees. It's, it's really helping us kind of thread that narrative together and finding out ways that we can bring that to bear. In, in different spaces. So thought leadership events, um, you know, activations with the employees, um, doing things to kind of amplify the consumer engagement and, and, and a place for talent and influencers to, to participate. On the fundraising side, we have, um, you know, all the sort of foundational relationships, uh, major gifts. We have also now a digital fundraising team, which has beget things like Red Nose Day Live, Right. Uh, we did a Coldplay uh, activation at the uh, for the end of Red Nose Day month of, of May. It was incredible. They just they did a four piece set for us on TikTok, and it was fantastic. Wow. We have an entertainment group that works in LA and has you know um, deep relationships with folks that come and sort of participate with us every year and give us their time. And that team works across everybody: PR, uh, marketing fundraising. And then we have a grant team. Um, I think that's one of those things that happened that you told me about. We're not going to worry. So I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) Do you need to pick that up? Nope. (laughs) That person just got sent to (laughs) sent to voicemail. Um, I think that when you were, uh, when you were interrupted by your phone, you were saying we have a grants team. Yes, so we have a grants team that is, you know, I and and you know, part of the interesting thing is because our our balance is so we're deeply ensconced in the marketing and the comms and the creative, but we are also as equally deeply rooted in our grant making work. And as I mentioned to you, you know, we have a five year grant making strategy for Red Nose Day. We have just come off of a theory of change work for our, to kind of provide an additional North Star to our, you know, vision of a just world free from poverty. But what does that mean in terms of, of where we're putting our line of sight for the programs that we support? And so, you know, which has really yielded a new lens for us around what it means between the difference of supporting the root causes versus the consequences of poverty. And how do you, how do you navigate your supportive programs differently when you start to contemplate that, uh, that lens into your work? And we ensure there's a small but mighty team of grant makers who are incredibly close with our, our grantee partners to ensure that we are, again, aligning against the values that guide our grant making. And we're strict about this, the kind of impact we're making, the inclusion, um, really, I would say, 
ensuring that the the populations of poverty are sort of sitting at the table through these programs that you can feel their presence in the sort of solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, interdependence in terms of let's lean on each other's shoulders together. Um, integrity, that everything we do is guided by our strict ethical standards. Even, you know, and when you get into things like storytelling, when you get into things like marketing, and you really need to ensure that you are, you've got a center rudder that keeps that balance because it's very easy to kind of go uh, too far one way or the other. And intersectionality. I think, you know, it's not just um, safe, healthy, educated, and empowered. I think that works great in the consumer realm. But when you start to think about ensuring that everything has racial equity, as I mentioned, gender equity, centering on the most impo- impacted populations, this is, I, I see our grants team as being the ballast yes. get, and the sort of um, counterweight in many ways. And that's a deeply unique space that our organization occupies there's a um there's just an intro just listening to it and and i too am a listener um (laughs) it's 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 a it is an organization that focuses in on it has a marketing engine and a grant making engine in many ways and so many nonprofit organizations see marketing as a luxury, right? As, oh, if only I could. And uh, certainly funders would put marketing, communications, entertainment outreach. Those things would not be seen as core program work. They would be seen as the, the dreaded, two four-letter word, overhead. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I want to come back to that, but I also just want to just, uh, for those of you uh, listening, to be reminded that we're talking with Allison Moore, who's the CEO of Comic Relief U.S. And I really was struck by and asked her to join us today to talk about this very topic coming from non coming from the for-profit sector and building brands and being part of startups and arriving at this unique nonprofit called Comic Relief US that has a very different kind of model um and I wanted you to try it on right I wanted you to hear it I wanted you to hear about it and I wanted you to think about, okay, I wanted you to put your skepticism aside and I want you to think, what can I grab from this? And is there an innovation? Because you certainly were good at it in 2020. Is there a way that I can pivot to do some of the kinds of things Allison is talking about today? So, um, uh, that's why Allison is here and why I thought this would be an interesting conversation. Um, uh, I wanted to um, stay with this concept of marketing for a minute. And um, and I certainly know, I, I you know, when I was running a nonprofit and you went knocking on the door of a corporation, actually the story I tell is that when, when you first, when I was first at GLAAD, the first door you'd go knocking on in corporate America would be to the to some champion inside the organization who would help you get at the the CEO's discretionary fund, right? Which they don't have those anymore. Then, yeah. then you would go to the PR department, and you go right. to the PR right. department because um, th- th- they would want to 
promote the notion that they were inclusive. Mm -hmm. Then off you'd go to the HR department where, uh, you know, sort of diversity is a cornerstone of the work even 15 years ago and now God knows even more so. Um, and then, then we evolved into the corporate social responsibility arena, right? And certainly mm-hmm. I knew all of the main folks at the corporates, the CSRs at main companies. But the evolution has really gone where it actually should go, which is to the marketing folks. Mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about, right? CSR, the the distinction between knocking on the door of the CSR and knocking on the door of the chief marketing officer, how those are, what's what's that evolution been from your perspective and how is it different when you're actually, uh, when you're actually, how does a nonprofit position itself to be of value to the marketing people at a company? So there's a bunch yeah. of questions in there. I'll let you take whichever one you like. Okay. Okay, good. I, you know, having come from the corporate side, to your point, I have deep, great friends who run the CSR organizations at, at you know, many of them at uh, media companies, and their jobs are different. Their jobs are somewhat aligned between the the PR and kind of brand implications of what uh, corporate social responsibility does and how that halo affects back to the organization. Um, And then the disbursement of those funds against the programs and organizations and partners that are doing work that are emblematic of what they would like to stand for in the world as a brand. I think that's one that's one linear path, frankly, of decision making around making this up. You know, one hundred thousand dollars should go to this program because it's a more broad brushstroke as to how to make that happen. And I don't think that that's easy work. I just think that that's that's the description of what happens there. When you get to a CMO in the marketing department, and I, you know, in my experience, the conversations between the CSR department and the CMO department are converging. Uh-huh. Much more so than even five years ago, three years ago at corporations where I was sitting in ostensibly a, a, what could be a CMO role and not necessarily I'm wanting the my brand to be seen as doing good perhaps in the world. Right. And ensuring that the CSR folks, almost like talking about the CSR work from a distance. Well, it's, you know, my brand X is doing a good, you know, doing something great in the world as evidenced by these six programs that we support. Correct. A CMO conversation, when you really get deeper in that, when they are taking not only and responsible for this product must communicate authentically what the brand needs to do and wants to be in the world and authentically communicate that to a consumer in the midst of a also engaging them to probably do something or buy something or act. And it's a very, very different role for the, the, the nonprofit how am I going to participate in that conversation with you? How do we ensure that, you know, um, because at the end of the day, the value creation is different. You know, the CMO is evaluated as to how much engagement that they had around a certain idea, right. how much their brand, you know, and by engagement, it means people clicking or buying or acting. So whatever it is that you're doing in partnership with a CMO needs to feel additive to their goals, which is finding more consumers 
more end users, however that is. And I think that's where the deep partnering comes together. You know, how are we going to communicate this? This is why in some ways, if you are really only talking to CSR folks at a corporation, the idea of reducing your, what you do to safe, healthy, educated, and empowered seems, okay, what? that seems very reductive. Why would we ever describe ourselves that way? It's kind of pithy and sort of snappy, right? But it's marketing language and it's marketing language that can, and we are the stewards of that language to ensure that we are protective of the work that we're doing because we're not selling soap. We're, we're raising dollars to help folks through programs that are deeply important in their lives and in the human fabric of life. So we, as a marketing team, not only help come up with the pithy phrasing, but also ensure that the language that that goes through as we work with the partner feels right to not only us, but also them. And that requires a partnership conversation. Again, back to the point that it's not a transactional relationship. And I would say, you know, the, the marketing team at Walgreens is deeply conversant in our work and understands um, what works I say that in air quotes at retail, but understands that we we're it's not, you know, tied soap or it's not, you know, toothpaste. It's programs for children. Yeah. And so how do we find that that intersection between creativity and communication and getting somebody's mind opened up and then having them act, which in this case is donate. Um I'm curious. I'm curious about your team. So, right, you said mm-hmm. being conversant in the language of marketing inside a company. Um, uh, the profile of folks who work at Comic Relief in the marketing department, are they, a, you know, who would I find in your marketing department? So some folks come from media, uh, like, like I have. Um, some are from agencies. There are a few that have come through digital startups around social good and social impact. Um, some commercially oriented, not necessarily uh, nonprofit, but social good. Um, and then I have some folks from nonprofits too. It's, it's quite the, the cross section. But I think uh, our head of marketing, Mary Grigliano, she's amazing. She was at MTV and in addition to Turner um, for many years. You know, that that's from where she has come, but she spent six years in this space and more, I think in this space, understanding how to take that really interesting space and make it and, and, and bridge that gap between, you know, how do we positively and protectively communicate our work and be zippy and authentic and, you know, enlightening and fun and joyful and, fast to communicate because you have to, whether you're at NBC platforms or Walgreens, but also keep an eye because we're of the topics that we're talking about and the, and the children that we represent. And smart people can do that. <laughs> you're listening to Nonprofits Are Messy. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. 
And now back to the podcast. So just a curiosity question. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I talk a lot about before you hire someone or before you bring on a board member, make sure, and I use the sort of the Quaker analogy. So I do some work with Quaker independent schools and talk about Mm -hmm. how uh, there's, everybody has a light in them, right? That's right. Right. And, and, uh, Christians call it a soul and you know whatever it is, right? And that you're really looking for somebody whose light is shining particularly brightly about yes. the mission of your organization. And how do you balance that when you're, I'm, I'm curious how you balance that when you've got, certainly you're, 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 you could see it more. And again, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm being naive on behalf of naive listeners. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, how when you when you need to go and find these folks that have specialized skills you're not likely to find in the nonprofit sector how do you know they've got that light burning brightly for that cause right of of helping kids how do you or how do you ignite that in them and i because it's you yourself said at the very beginning of this conversation any way you structure this any way you do nonprofit work it's just hard it and the, how do you how do you navigate the hard because you're because you have this br- really bright light and that that gets yeah. you through the hard days and I just wonder how you balance that out because you clearly have a very um, you know a team of people that have a very specific expertise which has got to be in the fore given what you do but how do you cast the characters so you got the they got the bright shiny lights. Yeah, I think the uh, it's a great question, and I think underlying that question is the fact that there are many people sitting in jobs that are functionally different that wish to kind of have more purpose and impact and the ability to do something good in their role. And I think in some ways, um, and this is true everywhere, right? You can't, you know. Oh, you go and interview for a job at a CPG company and they're like, well, I'm sorry, you've never worked in CPG. You've only been in retail or you've been in media or whatever. Like, there's always like some reason somebody can't cross the chasm into the next sector. That's small thinking, I think, in general. That's always small thinking. I, yes. I frankly think that I, I have enough skills that I could traverse across categories because the passion and the curiosity and the willingness to put energy behind making change is there. Yeah. And so I say that as a proxy for coming, you know, folks, media, digital, I have folks who have been in like long, you know, uh, the gold standard lines of digital companies too. Like, why are you coming here? You're making less money. This work is hard. We have less money to do anything with, but these folks want to come to know that the work that they're doing is serving something bigger than them. Yes. And that's the light. And you can get, you can smell that in about like five minutes in a conversation. I think I really do. Yep. And I think it, I have a team of, you know, really authentically rooted people in this organization. I have to say it is, you know, um, from everywhere. And I will, I will say also, it's an interesting duality because my grant making team who are incredibly conscientious and rooted in the work that we do on the grant side. Yep. Um, thorough, it, you know, very deeply kind of understanding all the different levers that are kind of pushing our work forward. They have 
an equally interesting tolerance to sort of sit in the meeting and then understand that, you know, we have to find that middle space between, you know, I said it earlier, but the white paper that describes the work that we're doing and the sort of like marketing copy that goes along. And it's not comms copy, it's marketing copy. Yep. And they have a lot of tolerance and you can feel they, the, there's interest in the alchemy. There's interest in the alchemy. That's what it is. That the grant making team is like, okay, this is mildly interesting. They need to feel like they have a voice to where if anyone goes too far one way or the other, that they have a vote at the table. And then the marketing folks need to feel the same way around like, okay, I need to be able to build and amplify this work, you know? So let's, let's, and how do we keep that balance between the two? And everybody has that common denominator of interested in the fact that we're structured this way and how unique it is and leaning into the interest and then have that light of, I want to, I, I, I want to do something different to make and, and, and do it in a different way, perhaps. You're, um, you're doing something right because I think the, the cultures of those two entities, your grant makers and your marketers, could be, um, your cultures are probably quite different. And there could be a tension there that could be disruptive. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by, by building a team where there's mutual respect and curiosity for what the others do and your eye on the sort of on the big, uh, on the prize m- makes the yeah. difference. Um, I have two questions. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I have two questions, two last questions before we run out of time. Um, so, um, you and I know that corporations, they do, they want reach, they want eyeballs, they might want specific kinds of eyeballs, right? Yeah, you give, you give them, you give Walgreens a lot of eyeballs, you help, you help them, that's part of what you bring to them. Um, <clears throat> when I was the CEO of Glad, um, the, <laughs> I guess this is not exactly the right way of saying it, but some companies were looking for gay eyeballs, right? And I could give them LGBT eyeballs, right? Um, and that could give them press. It could give them access. We could got access to celebrities or access to market to what they saw as a pretty loyal niche market. And I guess if you, uh, the, my, my last, uh, my, this is, yeah, my second to last question is, what if your organization is small, right? Mm-hmm. So many of them are small, right? Um, <clears throat> how do you, how do you begin this journey? I, I'm going to flip it a little bit because I actually don't feel that we bring Walgreens scale. They bring us scale. What we bring to Walgreens is, is a level of context to the kind of purpose-driven work that they do and a level of understanding for their consumers of where Walgreens stands on creating meaningful change in their communities. And so it's in some ways, and this is, you know, Richard's like, oh, brand, brand. But I'm like, it is, it's the brand. <laughs> it's the brand of Red Nose Day. And what we what we do together, that they have all the scale in the world. What they, what companies that have these kinds of scale want engagement and reasons to be, that feel aligned with where they they hope their organizations are in the world. And in the case of Walgreens, in the case of NBC, this, these two organizations are, you know, they do many things, but they are deeply, deeply 
um, connected to the, to what kind of impact that they can make in their respective communities. And we amplify that as a brand and all the work that we do. And by, by saying a brand, like what, how we communicate to their consumers. And then the second part, which is very important, have a, they trust us to ensure that when those dollars are raised from their consumers, that it, it is going to the places that are actually moving the needle and places that are safe. It's like the good housekeeping safe, safe seal of approval, right? right? So like those dollars are going somewhere that we can trust. And so when I say, the reason I bring that up is because I think any organization has the ability to be, that's a value exchange in some way, if I'm going to, you know, pull that back and call it something wonky out of a business book, but that's, yep. that's what it is. And if I'm a small organization and I know that my work is aligned with the sort of professed interest at a corporation or what a CMO is trying to communicate to their consumers, the ability to bring that to light and work creatively with the CMO to kind of come up with a way to marry product X with the work that we're doing and then the trusted distribution of those funds. Yes. I think that's doable even as a small organization because you punch above your weight in terms of what you're bringing to the value table. I think that's right. I also think, um, uh, maybe you'll agree, um, that it's not, is don't look at that company in a narrow way, right? Don't look at it as that's a bank, Right. right. That's, it's yeah. not just a bank. No. Right. What are when you when you, and increasingly it's less of a bank. Right. I mean, particularly in the corporate sphere. Yes. Right. right. When you look at a bank. Right. Explore their values. Right. Yeah. Go to, you know, get get a conversation going and understand what their values are. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and and so, for example, you know, banks, sometimes some banks are totally about community. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You don't think of a bank as necessarily being about community. You think of a bank as being about money. What else is the company fundamentally about? Don't right. look at it just at face value. I, I feel like a lot of a lot of nonprofits think too narrowly about what a company really cares about and what its value proposition is to its people. And I think that that's, I think that's the fault of the model, too. Right. That goes back to the innovation piece. Yeah. Like the, the model is predicated upon like, we're a nonprofit. We look for big chunks of money and then we will distribute that. And, you know, and it's like, it, that's too, it's too one directional. And I think there's a, there's a space for that clearly because there's major foundations and major corporations with big bank like environments that they want to disperse money to by all means. And I will be in line with you trying to figure out (laughs) how we, have those dollars so that we can distribute it to our programs. This is different. This requires a different level of thinking of really sending across and partnering with an organization. And you're exactly right. Finding out like, and don't go bang your head against the wall with an organization that says one thing and does another. Find the ones that have the intersection between the values that feel right for your organization. And because the conversation and partnership will be all that, better and and frankly the work will be better which will raise the funds in a more material way and that's how i feel like you know our partnership with walgreens and nbc is i mean i i can't stress it enough it's not a typical like hey we're partners it really is we it's mutual value creation they're as interested in our sort of growth and development as an organization as we are in sort of theirs you know it's different. Um, 
so we're we're just about out of time. Is there anything, <clears throat> any last words for you, uh, from you to to our listeners about sort of this notion of innovation and scale? Scale. Any last comments about? I mean, if that's really what we've been talking about, I just want to make sure you get the last word here. Yeah. Okay, well, one last word is that I didn't talk about the scale of the impact of our work. And I have to say that I just remembered it's 25 million children in the U.S. and abroad have been positively impacted by our work together. There you go. With, and that is, that's the real scale. Um, and I also forgot to add in this year's number, $270 million thus far with Red Nose Day in the U.S. So scale matters. It but the the path to scale is, I think, can be, it's not one recipe. And I think that is important for folks to remember. And if it's not one recipe, then that means there needs to be, there's a Rubik's Cube involved. <laughs> and figuring out and being insanely as a piece of advice or what I, you know, feel like fuels my ability to get up every day and be like, okay, yesterday was hard, but <laughs> what, what are we doing what today? What you know? today? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, understanding that you can't, you have to take a few risks. Yeah. Mitigated risks, wise risks. Be, the Rubik's Cube is unendingly trying to figure out the right path to, to get to a place of sort of, you know, uh, stability, I would say, because I don't think the Rubik's Cube really ends. At least you're one of those geniuses and I'm not one of those people that can do it in two minutes. Um, curiosity, you know, how, how am I, okay, I've been just dealt this ball. How am I going to handle it? Well, I'm endlessly curious to figure out how to come up with solutions. Yep. And I think you said it earlier, it's the ability to keep your eye on the future of the organization, right? What's around the corner? Be open to that with all the risk-taking Rubik's Cube, curiosity, everything I just talked about. But at the same time, being really pragmatic about steering the path operationally for the team yeah. and paying attention to the things like you need to have trust around the organization. What are your own organization's values? Are your people kind of, you know, what's your own cadence of operation and work? You know, how are how are folks being able to sort of be lit up in the cause and kind of grow their own areas of work to kind of just make more is more? I think that duality between future state and what's happening on the ground today is super important. But that's like any leader, I think, frankly, should kind of keep that in mind. Um, and then, you know, I think digital, 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 mm -hmm. digital. Um, you know, it definitely is a different space. We're learning more every day, you know, the difference between a digital email communication, right? And what, what the giving patterns are there versus like showing up to TikTok to watch four, four songs from Coldplay, right. different experience there versus um, coming to a creator led event and having them talk about the cause. You know, there's all kinds of things in digital, but if you think about your own behavior and how much we're stuck to these little joyous devices and like how many things we do every day incorporate that, it's it's where we need to be. Look, have the direct mail, have the gala, have all that stuff, but ignore digital at your peril. <laughs> well, that's that's fire and brimstone at the end there. I shouldn't end on that. There you go. That. Well, that's okay. I <laughs> said what fresh hell awaits you tomorrow. <laughs> so I think we're on the same page. I was keeping with that theme, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, totally. So um, I, I uh, thank you. I think that there's a bunch of messages 
in all of this. Um, I just, I have done a lot of work recently on uh, ignoring tech at your own peril and uh, Mm -hmm. marketing technology as program work and not as overhead work. I think today has been a bit of a masterclass on the power of marketing in the same vein. It's about building scale. It's about building reach. It's about more people knowing about your organization and wanting to come closer and closer with every touch point. And, um, and we, you know, we did not talk, we ran, have run out of time, but I did not talk about boards who tend to be a little risk averse. Yeah. Um, start marketing to them. Have them listen to mm. a podcast like this and have them get a bite of the innovation and the marketing apple and see, listen, have them listen to what's possible and begin a process of reframing what board service really is. It's not about oversight and making sure that nothing goes wrong. It's about looking around the corners and about getting the right people on your bus who bring new skills to the table like the kinds that Allison talked about today. So Allison Moore, um, seems to me Comic Relief US was uh, was lucky that you had an appetite for uh, making a difference in the world. So um, thank you so much for your work and for thank joining us so today. Thank you for having me. What a great conversation. I'm could have been sitting here chatting with you all day. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank well, you so much, Well, I think that we probably have some nonprofit leaders that need to go back to work and you are amongst them. So um, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks for uh, getting up every day and doing the hard work and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.